What an awesome privilege to be at the Mission Church this morning and to have been entrusted by Rich and your elders to be able to deliver a message from the Word of God to you. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so excited. We are partners in the gospel. I know you pray for us. I want you to know we pray for you regularly. The Mission Church is on our heart and in our prayers. And whenever you do a one-off sermon like this, it's kind of hard to know what to preach on. Now, in God's providence, I decided I want to preach on Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. If you're familiar with that text, you know it's about sacrificial service. It's about humility. It's about being last of all. And I didn't pick this text for this reason, but I was thinking even this morning how it's a fitting sermon because this church has modeled for us what that's like. As you guys have served us in so many ways, and your service and your generosity to us over the years is more than I can express thankfulness for. So I hope you'll be encouraged as we consider this text from Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. Quickly, just to set the context, this text appears as Jesus and the disciples are on the way to Jerusalem. And in Mark chapter 8, verse, or Mark chapter 8 through Mark chapter 10, we get these instructions on what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus? What does life in his kingdom look like? So on the way to the cross, we discover that discipleship looks like the way of the cross. And keep that in mind as we read these verses from Mark 10. Beginning in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." Let's pray together. Father, we come to you, Lord, as we open up your word and seek to understand it, to submit to it. Lord, we pray for your help, 
for the illumination of your spirit, we pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, that where pride continues to manifest itself, where we want to be first of all, where we want those positions of power and glory, that you would convict us, Lord, that you would humble us. Lord, for those who are serving so sacrificially and grow weary in the task, that you would encourage them and strengthen them with your love and your grace. And Lord, we pray that you would do more than we could ever ask or imagine according to your great power at work in us. For the glory of your name, for the advance of your gospel, for the building up of your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Alfred Poirier tells the story of the space shuttle tragedy challenger in his article called The Cross and Criticism. If you've never read this article, I encourage you to Google it and read it. It's really encouraging and helpful. But he tells this story as an illustration to begin his article. Here's what he writes. On January 28, 1986, the space shuttle Challenger and its crew embarked on a mission to broaden educational horizons and promote the advancement of scientific knowledge. The most outstanding objective of the Challenger 51L mission was the delivery of educational lessons from space by teacher Krista McAuliffe. A lesson was indeed delivered, but not one which anyone expected. Just 75 seconds after liftoff, tragedy struck. Before a watching world, the shuttle suddenly erupted overhead, disintegrating the cabin along with its crew. The debris of metal, blood, and bones plummeted to earth, along with our nation's glory. What had gone wrong? That was the pressing question everyone asked. As teams of researchers examined the wreckage, the specific cause was soon found. The problem was with the O-rings, circular rubber seals, which had been designed to fit snugly into the joints of the booster engine sections. Evidently, the O-rings had become defective under adverse conditions, and the resulting mechanical failure led to the tragedy. Was that the whole story? The truth eventually got out. The New York Times put it frankly. The ultimate cause of the space shuttle disaster was pride. A group of top managers failed to listen carefully to the warnings, advice, and criticisms given by those down the line who were concerned about the operational reliability of certain parts of the booster engine under conditions of abnormal stress. Just think, heeding criticism could have saved human lives. That's a powerful story. When I read that, I asked myself the question, I wonder if I was one of those top managers, if I would have listened to those under me and taken their advice. Or if I would have been too proud to hear what they were saying. I don't know. I don't know the answer. Because I know my own heart. I know the pride that manifests itself so often in my own life. I was convicted even just writing this sermon as the Lord just brought to my mind how I have noticed a tendency 
in my life, when my sweet wife brings a word of constructive criticism to me to immediately start thinking of my comeback or things that she does so I don't have to listen. Pride. Arrogance. Would I have done any differently? I honestly don't know. Friends, pride is a terrible vice. Pride leads to disaster and ruin. It destroys relationships. It ruins marriages. It cripples ministries. It rips families apart. We could go on and on about the devastating effects of pride. And if we are honest, we are prideful people in so many ways. And yet, as Christians, we know there is no place for pride in our lives or in Christ's church. And this is the lesson the disciples had to learn on the way to Jerusalem. In the text before us, James and John come up with this question because they want power, they want greatness, they want authority. And they must learn a lesson about the upside-down logic in Christ's kingdom. That true greatness is not reserved for necessarily the smartest, or the strongest, or the most influential, or the best-looking, though some of us can't help but fall into that category. It's our curse in life. But true greatness in God's kingdom looks like selfless, sacrificial service for the sake of others. So we're going to walk through this text under four headings. I'll give them to you from the outset. Number one, the problem of pride. Number two, the path of discipleship. Number three, the posture of service. And number four, the power of the cross. And no, I don't always alliterate my sermons. That is my gift to you. Don't tell crossroads. Number one, the problem of pride. Look at verse 35 again. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him. And we should pause right there and just comment on these two disciples. These two are part of Jesus' inner three, right? In fact, they were even given a nickname by Jesus. We see that earlier in Mark's gospel. They were called Boanerges, sons of thunder. And you wonder, why did Jesus give them this nickname, sons of thunder? Well, maybe that narrative in Luke chapter 9 gives us a clue when the disciples and Jesus are coming to Samaria and word gets to Samaria that they're coming and they won't accept them. And James and John say to Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? And Jesus says, no, not necessary. Maybe they were hasty. Maybe they were bold. Maybe they were a little trigger happy. They are sons of thunder. And they come to Jesus with a request. Verse 35, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. You see, it's the warm-up question before the real question. Hey, what are you doing this weekend? How do you answer that question? Well, nothing. Oh, good. Can you help me paint my house? This is the warm-up question before the real question. We want you to do whatever whatever we ask. And he said to them, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand 
and one at your left in your glory. It's just a small request. (laughs) What is the nature of the request? Well, they want the positions of power. They want the positions of glory. They want the influence. This is the perfect time to ask. They're on the way to Jerusalem, and though Jesus has been teaching them that he's going to suffer and die, they're not getting it. Oh, he's coming in. He's the king. He's going to conquer. Let's get an audience with him now and secure our positions. I mean, you could just see them plotting this on the way to Jerusalem. I'm reading between the lines here a bit. James goes to John. You know, James, we've, we've left everything to follow this guy. And we've given up a big family business, fishing business. We should ask him for something. And John says, yeah, you know, and we're, we're part of his inner three, along with Peter. He's even given us nicknames. He's taken us to see things none of the other disciples have seen. Like when he raised that girl from the dead, Jairus' daughter. He clearly likes us. Let us go. Let us ask him for these, for this position. I think we probably even deserve it. I mean, you can just see how their question reeks with entitlement. It reeks with pride. And let's not pretend we don't know what this is like. John Stott has written how the church is filled with Jameses and Johns. Let me read to you this paragraph from John Stott. He says, the brother's statement, we want you to do for us whatever we ask, surely qualifies as the worst, most blatantly self-centered prayer ever prayed. They seem to have anticipated that there would be an unholy scramble for the most honorable seats in the kingdom, so they judged it prudent to make an advance reservation. It was the exact opposite of true prayer, whose purpose is never to bend God's will to ours, but always to bend our will to his. Yet the world, and even the church, is full of Jameses and Johns, go-getters and status-seekers, hungry for honor and prestige, measuring life by achievement, and everlastingly dreaming of success. They are aggressively ambitious for themselves. We don't know what that's like, do we? To everlastingly dream of success to see ourselves on the pedestal, to want the recognition, the public platforms. Notice the difference between James and John and their request and the example of Jesus in this chapter. Look at the verses immediately before James and John's request. Back up to verse 32. Notice the contrast. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. After three days, he will rise. So Jesus is about to commit the greatest act of humility and service the world has ever known, and James and John come to him and say, hey, give us power. We want glory. 
they don't get it. Jesus has been teaching them about the nature of his kingdom for the last several chapters. And it's an upside-down logic. In Mark 9, 30 through 37, we learn that the kingdom is for servants. In Mark 10, 13 through 16, we learn that the kingdom belongs to children. In Mark 10, 17 through 31, we learn that the kingdom is not for the rich and the influential. And the constant refrain throughout the narrative is the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And in that context, James and John say, let us sit at your right and your left. It's the problem of pride. Second, notice the path of discipleship. Look at verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Okay, so you want power and status and glory? Here's my answer. Can you drink the cup? And so the question is, well, what is the cup? Well, in the Old Testament, we learn that the cup represents the righteous and holy wrath of God against sin. So there's verses like Psalm 75, 8. Let me read it to you. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Or consider the way the Lord describes his judgment on Jerusalem for their idolatry in Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Who have drunk to the dregs the bull, the cup of staggering. The picture there is of God's people drunk not with wine, but with judgment, suffering, the wrath of God. This is the cup that Jesus will drink. We know Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he can't even stand up. His soul is sorrowful to the point of death because he is about to endure the righteous and holy wrath of God against sin, and it nearly kills him right there. And he says, Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I will but your will be done. Are you able to drink the cup? Uh, the, the imagery of baptism here is probably similar. Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized. He had already been baptized by John in the Jordan by now. But what is this baptism? He said in Luke chapter 12, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Seems to be referring to the cross when he will undergo the flood of God's judgment for sin. Can you drink this cup, James and John? I love their answer. Look at verse 39. And they said to him, we are able. We could do it. Sign us up. They don't see. Now look what Jesus says. We'll have to explain this. Verse 39, And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. 
clearly the disciples are not going to experience vicarious, redemptive suffering like Jesus would. He alone will bear the wrath of God as a substitute for sinners. But there is still something about the nature of his ministry that the disciples will emulate. And what is it? If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You will suffer. You will be persecuted. You are going to drink the cup in that sense because you will bear my cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Do you understand, James and John? This is what it means to follow me. Not the accolades and the praise of the world, but suffering, sacrifice, service. Brothers and sisters, the paradox of the kingdom is that we belong to a kingdom ruled by a crucified king. His path to glory was the path of suffering, service, and death. And isn't it the case that members of his kingdom, followers of Christ, should expect to follow in his path of suffering? And isn't it true that often our greatest moments as his servants are not in the displays of power, but in weakness, in ordinary faithfulness? That's what true greatness looks like. Have you ever heard the story of Helen Rosevere? You should look up the story of Helen Rosevere. She was a missionary from England to the Congo in the mid-20th century. She spent years there as a, as a nurse training other uh, people, establishing medical facilities, caring for lepers, and the most downcast among those people. Well, in 1964, a civil war broke out in the Congo. Rebel soldiers took control. They destroyed all her work. They took her and other missionaries prisoner and brutally violated them. She recounts the story of one of those moments. It's retold by Noelle Piper in her book, Faithful Women and Their Extraordinary God. Here's what it says. Rebel soldiers were starting at one end of a large room, taking women away one by one and bringing them back after they were finished with them. Helen's first impulse was to hide and not have to bear this humiliation again, again. Then she thought of Jesus. He put himself forward as a substitute for us the fellowship of his sufferings. She moved to the front to protect some of the other women from undergoing a new trauma they might possibly have escaped so far. Wow. Did she drink the cup? You want to know what greatness looks like? There it is. 
sacrificial service for the sake of others. The way to glory is the way of the cross. Notice thirdly, the posture of service. The posture of service. Look how the narrative continues in verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So the other ten disciples hear their request, and they are indignant. They're upset. And I don't think it's a righteous indignation here. Because earlier, back in chapter 9, after Jesus had told them once again that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die, they discussed something and argued on the way. And Jesus said, what are you arguing about? Oh, well, we were just kind of arguing about who's the greatest. (laughs) They don't get it. They're indignant. Why? Because Probably because James and John are cutting in line and they're going after the positions they want. You know, this word indignant is used earlier in chapter 10, and it refers to Jesus. When the disciples are keeping the children from coming to Jesus, it says Jesus became indignant. So Jesus got angry when the disciples kept the weakest and the lowliest and the most helpless members of society from coming to him. The disciples get indignant when other people cut in line to the positions of glory. Everyone wants to be at the top. Nobody wants to be at the bottom. Everybody wants to be first. Nobody wants to be last. I mean, this is all we know from childhood. When you get the ice cream out, I mean, what, is, what happens? Me first, me first, me first. Every time we would go on a trip, I can remember it. A fight would break out with my siblings. I get to sit in the front. No, I get to sit in the front. No, I get to sit in the front. This is all we know. It's time to unload the dishwasher. It's not my turn. It's his turn. Not my turn. Does anyone ever say, you know what? I know it's your turn, but I'm going to do it to serve you. Does that ever happen? (laughs) It's not natural to us. And as adults, we like to think we're better. Of course we are, right? We want public platforms. We want recognition. If nobody says thank you, we get fed up and just want to quit. We balk at criticism from people who are not as sophisticated as us. We argue with our spouse about who's doing more in the household. Implication, who's the greatest? It shouldn't be that way in the community of Jesus' disciples. Look what he says in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So that's the world system. Greatness is power. Greatness is authority. Greatness is ruling over other people. That's the way of the world. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Here is true greatness in Christ's kingdom. It is not the position of power, but the posture of a servant. 
It is found in the humility of mind that genuinely considers others' interests ahead of your own. It's found in laboring in obscurity, in service to Christ without the spotlight or recognition. Let me give you an example of true greatness, another one. This story comes from a man by the name Aubrey Sequera. He was a student with me in seminary, a brilliant guy from India, graduated with a PhD under Tom Schreiner, is doing incredible work overseas. I can still remember him preaching in chapel and thinking, wow, that was an incredible sermon. He wrote an article in one of the Nine Marks journals critiquing the Western church's obsession with all things big and rapid multiplication and numbers and reporting statistics that often don't conform to reality. Here's what he said. He told this story about a missionary to India many years ago. Now, I need to read this while keeping my emotional stability. <laughs> this story always gets me, so I'm just going to kind of go stoic as I read this. He said, let me share with you another personal story, this time of a foreign missionary. I knew a missionary who lived and worked in India for years, well over a decade. He established a business in a major city and labored slowly and patiently. He barely had any converts. In fact, he probably had only one. He died in India within months of his death. His business was destroyed. By numerical standards and strategic considerations for rapid growth, he was a total failure. By the standards of many Western mission agencies, the many dollars given to support him over the years were a total waste. So was his ministry a waste? I think not. I was his one convert. He taught me the gospel. He proclaimed to me the excellencies of Christ. He taught me how to read the Bible and how to discern truth. Truth from falsehood. He spent his life in service to his king, and my eternity is changed as a result. What is the impact of that one missionary's service? Now through Aubrey. No spotlight, no recognition. Greatness is selfless, sacrificial service. The mom pouring herself out for her kids day after day. Visiting the shut-ins that nobody wants to take the time to see. What if the members in our churches were really competing to be last of all? I wonder if we really get this. I like to ask our church some diagnostic questions, so let me ask you some diagnostic questions. Are you teachable? Do you receive advice and criticism without it crippling you? Would you be willing to hand over your ministry position or your platform to see somebody else thrive? and to champion them, and to help develop others? Are you able to follow and applaud and encourage someone in the position that you want? When you organize a service project or a 
and outreach? Are you thankful for all the people that don't show up? Because they're serving in other ways. Are you able to say, I'm sorry? Will you forgive me? Can you labor in obscurity without the praise of others? When you don't get your way and you feel like your voice is not being heard, are you able to keep going because you're doing your service for Jesus and not for the praise of others? We should reflect on that. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. We have so much pride in us. You know, I used to have a pity party for myself every second Monday of the month. Do you know why I would have a pity party for myself every second Monday of the month? Because early in my ministry at Crossroads, every second Monday of the month, I would lead a Bible study at the assisted living home next to our church. You're going to think, wow, this guy is really wicked. Why would he have a pity party? I would have a pity party because we lived at the parsonage at the time, and I would walk over there, and I would think, man, so many people out there are planting churches and training pastors and writing books and articles, and I'm going to this assisted living home to talk to like four elderly women, two of whom will be asleep, and the other two can't hear a word I'm saying. Who do you think you are? How prideful. You think you deserve better? Notice fourthly, the power of the cross. How can we deal with this pride that is in us? Look how it ends, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Most scholars think that there is an allusion here to two Old Testament texts, one Daniel 7 and the other Isaiah 53. Now you're familiar with these texts. I'm pretty sure Rich preached through Daniel not too long ago, and Daniel 7 is a very important Old Testament text, and you'll remember that what Daniel sees in a vision in Daniel chapter 7 are these beastly figures, these ferocious beasts that represent kings and kingdoms and the spiritual forces behind them. They represent worldly logic that seeks to overpower and destroy and rule by force. That's what these beasts are. But then Daniel sees one like the Son of Man who ascends into heaven and receives from God power and authority and dominion and glory. We should read Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Talk about power and greatness and majesty. There it is in this messianic figure. And it seems that Jesus is alluding to that when he says, even the Son of Man. But then he says came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. 
And it it brings to mind Isaiah 53, this famous text in the Old Testament that talks about the servant of Yahweh, who serves the Lord by giving his own life to redeem sinful people. One on whom our sins are placed, who dies in our stead, stricken for our grief, bearing our grief, so that we might be saved. Do you see how incredible this statement is? Even the Son of Man, the Lord of glory, came in a state of humiliation to win our salvation at the expense of his own life. Do you get this, James and John? Are you understanding what I'm saying? Look, how can we deal with the pride that is in us? The answer is, stand at the foot of the cross. When you stand at the foot of the cross and you consider who hung there in your place, the Lord of glory, it will humble you to the dust. That so great is your sin and my sin, so great is your pride and my pride, that what it took to accomplish our forgiveness and our redemption is the crucifixion of the sinless Son of God. That is pride crushing right there. But there's another aspect to it as well. And that is the freedom that is found in seeing how great you are loved. How great is God's love that he would indeed crush his own son to forgive rebels like us. And through faith alone in what he has done to be set free, to be declared declared righteous, forgiven, loved, adopted. That is God's verdict. No matter what anyone tells you or what praise you get or you don't get, what God has said is that you are loved and you are my child. And if you really embrace that, if you really understand that, it will liberate you to serve others in sacrificial ways without the recognition of anyone. Because if you have the love of Christ, what else do you need? Some of us get weak. We get tired. Let us not give up in serving one another. Let the love of Christ flow through you and rely on the power and the grace that he supplies for his glory and for the good of his church. Let's pray. Our gracious God, help us to live our lives day by day at the foot of the cross. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord, I pray for the Mission Church. I pray for Crossroads Church. I pray for your people throughout this valley that we would outdo one another in service, that we would find our joy in serving the king, no matter what accolades or what recognition, that we would rejoice that we labor in obscurity and die and are forgotten. 
And Lord, may the love that is expressed amongst your people, tangible expressions of love here in this body, be such a compelling witness to the watching world that others would say, I want that. So Lord, would you do more than we could ever ask or imagine? Would your spirit work in our hearts that we would be last of all and servant of all as we follow Jesus on the way to Calvary. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.